Hello, Ali Akbar. It's me, your favorite Lord and Savior, Jesus. I had a prayer request from a war dog named Thought Crimes. He uh, really prayed for your soul. And uh, I just wanted to let you know that accusing people of fraud after being busted for committing credit card fraud and also breaking into cars to get those said credit cards makes you look like a hypocrite. Not to mention uh, getting blackmail on various people to do evil, unspeakable things is just wrong. Especially when you do these horrible sins while invoking my name as a holy man. Speaking of invoking my name, you should tell your boy toy to stop screaming my name while having funsies in the bedroom. It's kind of awkward. Repent, and thou shalt be saved. By the way, Peter isn't into any of those types of favors you give people while snapping pictures. Have a blessed day. Jesus. Well, well, well. I thought I'd start it off with a little bit of fun. Now, I will be streaming since, you know, it's publicly available and we pay for it. And no one owns the right to it. Um, I'll be streaming everywhere, even on my YouTube. Hopefully they won't ban it because they can't. My taxpayer dollars paid for it so I can restream it. Uh, so that'll be a test and I'm willing to die on that hill uh, since my YouTube is active. Um, so this morning I woke up to some really weird happenings. Um, I know that, that, let me give you an, a kind of hint. It's really freaking me out. So yesterday I got calls, three of them throughout the whole day, random. Um, well, it was on my, my phone. And when it comes up private number, usually the people that call me on it comes up as private number and it literally says private number. So I hear recording that says, hi, uh, this message is from Amazon. Uh, there has been a request to authorize payment on your account for $999.99 for an iPhone 11. Uh, click one to authorize it, oh, to not authorize it, two to, to authorize it. I hung up. I didn't press anything. And I was like, fuck, now they're using private numbers, spammers are. So then... I um, get another call, again, private number, and I'm having conversations, and then another private call comes in, same thing. So I hung up, I filed a report with Amazon saying that I'm getting a call from a private number that's not showing their phone number, and uh, this is happening. And then I wake up to one of my accounts being compromised, and then another one. And then another one. And then another one. And I didn't comply with it. So I know all of you are getting those calls. It's important that you go into your Amazon app and tell them that you're getting that call. And don't click one or two because that could be them getting a prompt for authorization for something else. Um, but uh, be very careful. I didn't press anything. So it's been a really messed up morning considering that you know, for the next few days, I have to go places and, you know, <laughs> I'm going to figure it out though. Uh, God has a way. 
So I just wanted to tell you guys, warning, don't press any buttons. I didn't press any buttons. Um, so um, this is going to be fun because while I'm traveling, they'll send me replacements and then I have to, you know, go and fix everything, which will really fucking, it's such a hassle. I can't stand shit like that. But um, uh, wanted to say, um, first of all, in the uh, placeholder for this video, I put the video of Senator Tom Cotton uh, saying what I said a few days ago. And I think it's important that I play it for those that um, have not uh, been able to see the uh, video because you're not, you know, on Telegram or you're not watching on Rumble and you're listening on uh, iHeart or iTunes or whatever radio station is pulling my show. Uh, so I'd like you to hear what he says. It's really important that you deduce from what you hear. Well, it's the exact kind of danger posed when Chuck Schumer went across the street to the Supreme Court, just blocks from where I stand right now, and threatened Brett Kavanaugh by name, said that he would pay the price and that he wouldn't know what hit him if he went forward with decisions that Chuck Schumer and liberal Democrats didn't like. And now you have a Democratic hitman showing up at Brett Kavanaugh's home. Or that the White House spokesperson last month said that they encouraged these Democratic street militias to go protest at justices' homes. In other words, we all know who's responsible for it. Now, I thought I'd take everyone down rabbit holes, um, drawing on things that I've uh, said over the years uh, to hopefully make sense. See, uh, math it does get you to go down rabbit holes. Math is quite fascinating. But we also see that buried in... Uh, rabbit holes and, 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 and half-truths, which I've always said are the most dangerous. Truth is there. For example, even during our elections, uh, you know, when people were saying things, they were all half-truths or conclusions that they made that were wrong or purposely done. So I thought today we'd make it a little bit fun and... Um, kind of cover some of these rabbit holes and specifically my forte time travel slash predictive analytics you'll be surprised what math um can show you and also um i will be pausing a lot of these to comment and reflect on things so I hope you guys are going to like it because, you know, we're going to do politics later on tonight when we stream, you know, a Hollywood production of, uh, you know, whatever they want us to believe. So where do I start? Let's start with um, 2021 first. Uh, a lot of people are talking about how uh, the Simpsons always have predictions that come true or kind of true. And on reflection, they find them so. Now, uh, a lot of other people um, understand uh, the Mandela effect to be misremembering uh, things or um, misappropriating uh, the pictures, images, words to things. Uh, whereas, in fact, uh, this is all 
done <laughs> in a reverse uh, method, I, I would like to say. Uh, kind of like Nara. Uh, thank you so much for the rants. <laughs> uh, so kind of like Nara now is being privatized. This is where you switch shit up. And then there's a lot of things that are on YouTube, Reddit, Rumble, TikTok, Facebook that send you down rabbit holes because either they're very well orchestrated or they're factually correct or they're orchestrated but rooted in factually correct things. So people put it out as fiction uh, rather than facts. Uh, so we're going to kind of uh, in, look into that because uh, scientists and mathematicians uh, from the days of yore, from the early 1800s, late 1800s, 1900s, 1950s, that were very prominent. We're talking insane mathematicians. I mean, everybody knows the whole Tesla thing. Writers, scientists, right? Um, all of these people have written fiction books, except for Tesla. And all of them have the same type of stories. Now, there's some other ones that are a little bit more um, out there to grasp and need an open mind, I guess. Uh, but, you know, we did go over the Mandelbrot, which is uh, mathematics and everyone who is anyone in the physics, mathematics, algorithm field knows just how accurate it is. Therefore, therefore, I will try to help because many, many times I've said, uh, you know, this is a fixed point. This is, um, I would like to say, a terminating Mandelbrot that then perpetuates again with possibilities. Every single second that goes by, a Mandelbrot, we go right back to that little Mandelbrot image, the, 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 the image, and then so many possibilities, and then we end in one, end in another, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So let's start with... Um, you know, the Simpsons. Let's like ease into this fun idea that uh, maybe someone at the Simpsons or their friends. See, let me put it this way. So you're a writer for a TV show and I'm your friend. And so I have conversations with you over coffee and or text or FaceTime or something. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, it could totally be like this. And it would like that. And suddenly they bring that into a conversation with the group of writers and then they make a show. And this is how writers get inspired. They have muses that they speak to or maybe they play a video game and they get some, you know, epiphany as they're playing a game. Uh, but usually it's through conversation and happenstance or statements of what if, right? So let's take a look at this. Room full of modern Nostradamuses. Or uh, Nostradami? Anyway, the point is these folks are fortune tellers on a level we haven't seen since biblical times. 
So what does King Homer and the gang have in store for us in 2021? Let's look at some times The Simpsons saw into the future and why some folks are freaked out about what they see coming for 2021. Since the dawn of Homer, we've seen The Simpsons make predictions from Super Bowl wins to NSA surveillance scandals to tiger attacks and magic shows. Sorry, Secret and Roy, but to be fair, you didn't need to be The Simpsons to see that one coming. Just in the season six episode Lisa's Wedding alone, they predict video chat, smartwatches, and the construction of the Shard Building in the London skyline 17 years before it was built. It's not just the older classic seasons either. In season 21, they had Homer on the US curling team beating Sweden for gold eight years before the exact matchup in Pyeongchang. In season 23, they knew Lady Gaga would be in the Super Bowl halftime show, although when she did, she didn't take their cue on a fireworks projecting bra because, well, you know, divas probably. Even when they're wrong, they're right. When season 11 came out in 2000, would you have expected to picture President Donald Trump conceding to President Lisa? We've inherited quite a budget crunch from President Trump. Hey, 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 don't get mad at me. I voted for Kodos. While we're on voting, they predicted in 2008 voting machines where people try to vote for one candidate and the machine selected another, only to have that happen in the very next presidential election when a voting machine wouldn't let a voter select then-President Obama. It didn't count. Relax. How about some science? Homer becomes an inventor in the 10th season and writes an equation on a chalkboard. Years later, when scientists discover the Higgs boson, also known as the God Particle, look it up, nerds. Well, it turns out that the mass was similar to Homer's work. Three-eyed fish in rivers, mutant tomatoes, stealing grease for cash, it's all been thought of by the ghosts of Springfield past. You might call them writers, but I'd call them prophets of Evergreen Terrace. Oh, and uh, did I mention that they also called Disney acquiring the rights to The Simpsons themselves? Smart like a group of 20th century foxes. So what has the internet community all up in arms? Well, I mean, besides that and that. Okay, so their arms are always up on something. But what I'm trying to segue casually to is the fact that in the recent Halloween episode, known to fans as the Treehouse of Horrors, the writer's room was especially sour on the outlook of America in 2021. Ugh, haven't we had enough of this year? Well, someone left some black licorice in their candy bowls because they painted a pretty bleak picture of where America will be in a year. Well, they didn't fall far from it. Democracy ends in three, two, one. So true. And the Kamala thing. Let me give you an alternative here. They said that, uh, you know, Trump conceded to Lisa Simpson, who's Kamala Harris, because that's the outfit she wore when she went for the inauguration. Now, listen. Again, you know, because a lot of people thought that um, dates are important. It's actually fixed points in time that can't be avoided. And, uh, you know, usually, uh, obviously, for an outcome to occur in anything that you do, like, for example, I um, uh, predict, right, that, um, you know, a president will, uh, I don't know, hop, skip, and jump. And it's a fixed point in time. This is totally fictional, okay? Um, on, on camera. And they will hop and skip, like skip, like kids. And there it is. But in order to do that, 
the the predisposition has to be there, meaning that the people that are around the president would have to also encourage that behavior. Make sense? Like, oh, how are you feeling about this, you know, taking everybody's guns bill? I feel dandy, you know, and skip. Right. And so the reporters have to do their part in the way they frame the question. So will, you know, SCOTUSgate come to life in 2021, 2022, 2023? The kickoff is always set. The fruition of it is dependent on the people that make it happen kind of like the leak and the alleged shooter and and people uh, putting things out. So, again, fixed points in time happen. So there may be a fixed point in time that the president will skip when talking about the Second Amendment. But in order to make that happen, the right reporter has to be there, has to talk like a baby or kind of look really giddy about it and inspire him or her to want to skip. So the Kamala Harris scenario, hypothetically speaking, the Biden laptop was actually taken seriously. The elections happened. Biden was removed from office in December 2020. And therefore, Kamala Harris instantly becomes president and then they figure it out. Right. So that makes sense. The uh, your your democracy ending. Yes, exactly. That happened because even though you were voting, the world and your democracy was ending right there. So it's really important for people to understand that when people say, well, they missed this date. And it's like, uh, you know, you don't understand mathematics. You don't understand predictive analytics. But then we come to a point where it's like, wait a minute. You know, because we're going to talk about the whole Ingersoll Lockwood, and I'm going to show you why they took that and fucked with you when mathematically it makes sense if you go back to the Mandelbrot, right, with all those different, different things, and then they collide and they fall. Because as I've explained, this device, this computer that very few have commanded, look, tried to reverse engineer, and I have made it no secret, you know, always shows you the terminal end, the terminal big end, which at the end, what is it? Another baby Mandelbrot, right? So there are some very significant endpoints uh, that create new shapes, right? The little branches that come out and everything. So I want you to think of it this way. You're right now here listening to me. And according to the equation, you're at one position right now to that Mandelbrot. There are a lot of you that aren't listening to me right now. They could be on the same timeline of the Mandelbrot, or they can simultaneously be in another one where I do my show at night and I don't change it and decide, no, I'm not going to move my show back to my noon original slot. I am going to keep it in the evening and I'll just stream whatever they have. So that's another version. Another version could be me doing it at 2 p.m. Another version can be doing it at 1 p.m., 9 o'clock in the morning. Tons of versions because there's endless possibilities. I could have started the show whenever I wanted to. 
So uh, this is mathematically proven, all right? So this is in rabbit holes. We're talking math. We're talking science. And I'm also expressing to you how people can uh, be influenced and or reflect things in the past for the future because the past always proves the future because guess what? You can connect the dots backwards. You know why you are listening to me now. For example, um, if you were in your car and you didn't have good reception because you turned left instead of right, you wouldn't be listening to me right now. But you turned, you know, right, so you are listening to me. Again, choices, directions, and remember, billions of those at the same time that then collapse into one. The majority wins, the percentage of a timeline. But regardless, there is always that terminal fixed point in time node, which is what? Right, the Mandelbrot. So wherever you terminate. So this is, I'm, I'm trying to assist you in understanding the math behind it and to understand how fantastic and so incomprehensible of how perfect life is and how the possibilities are endless and concurrent at the same time. You cannot be here now if you're not in the past and the future in multiple different versions where you have the free will to decide which position you are. There is no such thing as predestined um, activity. But what there is, is collective activity. Now, things can be done to influence change. For example, what we are going through now would have occurred earlier. But it didn't happen earlier. And we didn't have a civil war earlier. Because what was realized through their calculations and their pinpoints in time was that it would end bad for them. So it's like feeding a crocodile, hoping that it eats you last. The terminal node is fixed. Nothing can stop what's coming. Everything else is simply prolonging it, and it's still coming to fruition no matter what version they choose. Now, you, the people, have a choice. Do you turn left? Do you turn right? Do you go dead forward? Time gives you the opportunity to make corrections or to advance or to revert, right? Every choice you make, you can go backwards or you can go forwards, right? There's only those two directions you can go, forward, backwards. And that's why the present is always simultaneously backwards and forward. And this is the core of mathematics that we're going to talk about today of a guy that everybody hated, <laughs> He was the Indian version of Tesla. So funny, they all manifested at the same time. Almost like now, a lot of random people are coming out of nowhere. Well, let's continue with these predictions for now. 
years' time. Firstly, they start us in nice and casual-like with a general apocalypse since Tommy forgot to vote. He slept through it, and by the time inauguration day, January 20th, 2021 appears on screen, well, let's just say those killer robots are a little worse to Hans Molman than your typical football in the groin. As Hans puts it in the way only his kind wrinkled peanut can. Oh, that's what I get for voting for Kanye. Huh. Department of Homeland Security robots, AI, who stole your elections on election day? Who did I say did it? Well, it's SISA, which is part of the Department of Homeland Security, and it's actually technology that did it. It's an algorithm, but I digress. Divinations don't end there. Fans have noted after the election that the map actually shown on screen in the episode pretty closely matches what the final electoral college map ended up being. Some of the states that flip from red to blue match up. Except for Ohio. And the only blue area is Cleveland. And who was monitoring all the freaking polls in 2020? Yeah, that's right. This could be a sign that someone in Springfield is a close observer of substandard polling, but fans are not convinced. How the creators of the show know this information is anyone's guess. Maybe these oracles traded their souls for donuts, or perhaps guest star Lucy Lawless put it best when she said, a wizard did it. Sure, we could flatly assume that they're just a bunch of soothsayers who landed a cushy Hollywood job to settle their outstanding gambling debts, but that would just be too easy. Or they have conversations with wizards and warlocks that, you know, they're not even aware of. Could be just some online friend on tour or, you know, Reddit. Great ideas, great stories that they drive and derive information from. And they all discuss, oh, that would be cool. The truth is, the show has always held up a mirror to society, which has influenced society in turn. Paul McCartney responded to a 50-year-old fan letter, as happened in an episode where Marge painted an homage to Ringo. As one of the original and longest-standing writers, Al Jean said in an article with the BBC, if you make enough predictions, then 10% will turn out to be right. Since much of the writing takes place long before it's animated, the creators are sometimes forced to project months ahead of the airing of an episode so they'll make assumptions to seem timely. Just this year, in a 2020 interview with The Hollywood Reporter, Simpsons writer Bill Oakley spoke candidly about how the show has been eerily accurate on their predictions. There are very few cases where The Simpsons predicted something. It's mainly just coincidence because the episodes are so old that history repeats itself. We're through the looking glass here, people. The reason The Simpsons have been in our homes and hearts for this long is because they've always known where we've been guides where we're going. For years, the residents of Springfield have been holding up a mirror to our modern society and sneaking in historical context to the point that they've made history themselves. What parts of their 2021 predictions do you see coming true, and do you have any predictions of your own? Share below in the comments, and make sure to like and subscribe for more from us at Scratch. So, key thing. The past proves the future. They said that. Well, not with those words. They said, where you've been tells you where you are going. Ah, kind of sounds like past proves the future. You can connect the dots backwards. And so weird. So weird. So that was just kind of like a dip into what we're going to be talking about today. Um, obviously using a derivative, you know, what people derive from it or their skeptical, you know, statements. So we're going to hop around a bit.
before we get to listen to actual Benal Mandelbrot himself talking about multifractual time as trading time. What? And it's a lot easier sometimes to read his shit than listen to him. But we already went through that lecture where the person pretty much made it as simple as possible, told you that the math was like broccoli on your plate when you were a kid, and you kind of understood how the math made it all fit. We also went by uh, months ago through the equation, the 3x plus 1, that is an endless loop, and it always comes back to itself And unfortunately, people don't put those together. Again, amateur mathematicians that aren't trained in the study are frowned upon. But, you know, I have a pretty stellar profile that's anonymous in my little string theory group. So I've got a lot of friends that think that I'm like some super mathematician if they only knew (laughs) how that happened. So let's get into the story of the man who everyone hated and then loved and, you know, That's when the world war started. So it's uh, coincidental. And isn't it that all of these people that have made such um, public slash non-public, they were kind of private, but not private. Um, I would say theories all died of tuberculosis, which is really weird. But anyway, this um, breakdown of this, um, this video is... Pretty awesome. This is from the channel Thoughty2 on YouTube. Uh, He breaks it down very well. And I think you're going to like what you hear and you're going to see a lot of things that rabbit holes had taken you down already in the past couple of years, but no one ever mentioned him. Video is kindly brought to you by Masterworks. Find out more later. Hey, 42 here. Wayne Cambridge University professor of mathematics, Godfrey Hardy, received a letter from a clerk working at the port of Madras in 1913. It's safe to say he was fairly sure someone was having him on. At first glance, the letter had all the hallmarks of a scam. It came from a far-flung country, India, and the author, a certain S. Ramanujan, mentioned early on that he was strapped for cash. Rather bizarrely, he also listed his age as being about 23. But just as the alarm bells were beginning to ring in Hardy's mind, the letter took a turn for the strange. Because whoever this S. Ramanujan was, he claimed to have made some startling discoveries in the advanced mathematical fields of infinite series, improper integrals, continued fractions, and number theory. These were not terms your average con artist was likely to be familiar with, and so, intrigued, Hardy read on. To support his claims, S. Ramanujan, this lowly clerk who apparently didn't even know how old he was, had followed his cover letter with 11 pages containing 120 mathematical theorems. Hardy recognised several of the equations from the work of famous mathematicians, but others were new to him, and a few looked like nothing he'd ever seen before in his 17-year career working in one of the world's leading institutions for pure mathematics. Some of the formulas even appeared to be related to areas of study in which Hardy considered himself to be the world's leading expert, 
and yet, to his surprise, he found he could hardly follow them. The mathematics on display certainly looked impressive, but the letter was so downright weird that, to begin with, Hardy didn't really know what to make of it. But eventually, after sharing the missive with some of his esteemed colleagues in the maths department at Cambridge, he was forced to conclude that it was no fraud. Whoever this clerk from the port of Madras was, he was a truly exceptional mathematician. As it happens, that conclusion was actually some way off the mark. Because the author of the letter, Srinivasa Ramanujan, wasn't merely exceptional. He was quite literally one of the greatest mathematicians ever to have lived. Now, I've got a mystery for all of you that's evaded an answer for almost a century. Why would one of the richest families in history store almost a billion dollars of their wealth away in fine art? Well, there's lots of theories as to why that might be the case, and maybe we'll never know for sure. But we do know some facts about contemporary art today. Contemporary art prices outpace the S&P over two-thirds of billion. I can give you a concrete. It's too expensive to look at diversifying. Fame is a minor miracle in itself. Born in 1887 in humble circumstances in the Indian city of Arode, Ramanujan was the eldest of five children, but only one of his siblings, a brother, made it to adulthood. It was a pretty close-run thing for Ramanujan as well. At the age of two, he contracted smallpox, a deadly disease that's thought to have killed more than four and a half million Indians between 1868 and 1907. Ramanujan survived and eventually recovered but his health was never quite the same again. Growing up at the tail end of the 19th century, Ramanujan was given the best education British India could offer him, i.e. not a very good one. That's probably why school didn't interest him all that much. His mother even had to recruit a local policeman to stop Ramanujan from skipping classes. But these indifferent feelings towards education changed in high school when Ramanujan was first exposed to formal mathematics. Something about the subject just felt right. But before long, he'd exhausted everything that either the school curriculum or his teachers could offer him. Undeterred, Ramanujan decided that it was time he took his education into his own hands. At the age of 16, he managed to acquire a copy of G.S. Carr's A Synopsis of Elementary Results in Pure and Applied Mathematics. It wasn't exactly a textbook, there were no descriptions or explanations, just page after page of complex equations, about 5,000 in all. The book had been written to help prepare Cambridge University students for the notorious mathematical tripos exams, amongst the hardest undergraduate examinations in existence at the time. To someone with no training in advanced mathematics, the book should have been utterly incomprehensible. Not all that dissimilar to trying to read a novel in a foreign language. But as Ramanujan studied the 1,000-page tome day after day, week after week, slowly but surely, the equations within began to reveal their secrets to him. By the way, as a completely random aside, it turns out that the Cambridge Mathematical Tripos exams are the origin of the concept of a wooden spoon being awarded for coming last in a sporting event. The term comes from an 18th century tradition in which the student who placed last in the Tripos was awarded the now famous booby prize. 
Actually, wooden spoons were handed out to Cambridge mathematics students for well over a hundred years, with the last ever spoon being awarded to the superbly named Cuthbert Lempriere Holthaus in 1909. Don't ask me why it's that big. I literally have no idea. Anyway, it's widely. All right, hold on. Let's look at that spoon for a second. We'll talk about that spoon another time because there's some nice Greek writing on there that's important that we see. There's Greek writing. Hold on, let me just fast forward. Nine. Don't ask me. So right there. For those who see, you know, we'll we'll talk about that. But his story is so identical to something that I felt when I got into physics when I was about nine. Um, I, I can tell you it was, uh, the, the schools were closed. Um, my parents couldn't put me on a plane with my sister to send me off to my grandparents yet. Um, there was something with the airlines, Olympic Airways. I, I don't remember. Usually the day school was out that same evening I was on a plane. And so um, I my mom at that point was finishing up her MBA at NYU and she had like a bunch of books. Obviously it was more accounting stuff or whatever. And I took her books and I was looking at these equations. I had no idea what I was looking at, but then I also had these books from the library. Now, one thing that my, my mom would get really upset about with me is that I would go to the library and I would literally take a garbage bag and buy um, you know, one hour limit that she'd have me, I would have that stacked with books that would be impossible for me to read and understand. They would be about physics and chemistry and spinning atoms and whatnot. And I can tell you that I um, remember not really understanding what they were saying in the words, but I was looking at the numbers and drawing relationships. So I had done that earlier where I was finding patterns in math. And this is why I was in nerd school anyway, in, you know, from when I was in kindergarten, but um, my mom would only give me an hour and I would stack that with, you know, books. And I, I would have a garbage bag in my pocket and she'd be like, don't take forever because she was doing her own thing, you know, at the New York public library for whatever she was doing. And that was it. And so I, um, would sit there and I, and I still have notebooks where I was trying to merge equations that I would find in one set to another and I would be obsessed. Like I would be writing and trying to solve the problem. And for fun, sometimes I would pull out books, you know, um, to then like resolve problems that they had. And this is where I was convinced by the age of 10 that the G factor that they claim on earth is 9.8 meters per second squared was false. And that was the first time I said, gravity does not exist. This is bullshit. This is just factoring in something they can't explain. So what he's going to talk about where this guy is like obsessed is exactly that because it, I, I, you know, to all of you listening, no matter what your age is, right? And I know it looks like gibberish, but when you go to a, a library or a bookstore and you want to look at, in, you know, discrete mathematics, formal mathematics, theoretical mathematics, you have to 
be attracted, number one, to the font. And number two, uh, you have to see problems solved one by one. And even though you don't understand it, and, I, and, 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 I, and I'd love you to just test this out. You could go to Khan Academy and go to like a physics course they do. And you write out the equation and you write it out again and again and again. And then suddenly it'll click. I, I literally, I, I urge you to just test it. Don't, don't take my word for it. Go there, find an equation where, you know, on Khan Academy, they're solving it and take a piece of paper and say, you know what? I'm going to try this out and see it. And I want you to write it again and again and again. And suddenly you're going to be able to understand what the equation is telling you. You won't need the words or the theorems or anything. You will just understand it. I kid you not. And start small. Start simple. You know, that the force equals mass times acceleration. And you'll be like, what? Some of you might be like, that's gibberish. And it's like, just go find that lecture online and just write that equation and solve whatever problems. And suddenly, click, 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 it starts to make sense. And you will get obsessed. I, I, I am giving you a warning here. You will get obsessed. That's all you need to do. You don't need to understand it. Pick a topic in physics. Again, physics, because physics, you know, Physicists are glorified mathematicians, okay? And physicists hate it when I say it. And I remember when I TA'd for the physics department, the physics professor had like a mustache that curls at the end. He freaking loved me, but he would hate the fact that I'd be like, all right, so there's no difference aside from the fact that instead of just doing the math, you're doing math that's applied, basically. And so he would be very upset, but I was one of the best TAs ever. And I wasn't even a physics major um, because it's all about inspiring someone to try their best. And how I would tell them is exactly what I told you to understand math. You have to see it applied. That's the problem. When you're being taught mathematics, you're not seeing it in application. So I urge you guys to just try it and you're going to feel what you're going to hear this guy felt. Why is that big? I literally have no idea. Anyway, it's widely accepted that G.S. Carl's mighty mathematical tome awakened Ramanujan's latent genius, sparking an obsession that would consume him for the rest of his all too short life. More on that later. Ramanujan excelled in high school, earning himself a scholarship to study at college. As you might expect from one of the greatest mathematicians to have ever lived, Ramanujan absolutely obliterated every maths problem put in front of him during his time in college. The trouble was, now that he'd found his calling, all of a subject suddenly seemed boring to him in comparison. As a result, he failed pretty much every subject that didn't have numbers in it, losing his scholarship in the process. Without a college degree, Ramanujan was effectively barred from any kind of job that might interest him. So he spent the following four years working on whatever mathematical problems tickled his fancy. Intellectually, it was incredibly fulfilling, but financially, yeah, not so much. Ramanujan was an independent researcher working on some of the most advanced mathematics being attempted anywhere in the world. But... Equations don't pay the bills, no matter how fancy they are. And so he lived in abject poverty, literally struggling to find enough food to stay alive. In 1909, Ramanujan took some time out from his busy schedule of doing maths and trying not to die of starvation to get married to a 10-year-old girl. 
I know what you're thinking. That's not ideal. But it was normal for such young girls to be married in India at the time, and Ramanujan didn't actually have much say in the matter, with the marriage being arranged on his behalf. To begin with, Ramanujan's wife continued to live with her mother, but eventually the couple moved to Madras, known today as Chennai. With a wife to support and a home to pay for, Ramanujan reluctantly accepted that he was going to have to get himself a job. And by 1912, he'd secured a position in the clerical team at the port of Madras. The work was easy, but Ramanujan didn't mind. It left him plenty of time to concentrate on his research. And that research was beginning to bear fruit, with publication in several Indian journals, gaining him recognition and supporters across Madras. By a wider audience. And that's how he came to write his now famous letter to Godfrey Hardy at Cambridge University. Hardy was desperate to meet the young genius in person, and he'd begun making arrangements for Ramanujan to come to Cambridge before he'd even replied to the letter. But to begin with, Ramanujan was reluctant to make the journey. As a member of the Brahmian, or so-called priestly caste in India, he was subject to the Kalapani taboo, meaning that if he were to cross the ocean to a foreign land, he'd lose his social standing back at home. But in the end, the pull of Cambridge proved too much. And in the spring of 1914, he made the month-long voyage to England aboard the SS Navaza, leaving his wife behind in Madras. It's fair to say that life in England wasn't without its challenges for Ramanujan. There was no questioning his genius, but being entirely self-taught, his methods were completely alien to the traditionalists at Cambridge. Then there were the cultural challenges. India may have been under British rule during Ramanujan's lifetime, but the two countries could hardly have been more different. Ramanujan's transition to this new life was made even more difficult when, three months after his arrival in England, a young sir by the name of Gavrilo Princip assassinated Archduke Franz Ferdinand in Sarajevo, kicking off a chain of events that would lead to the outbreak of the First World War. Hundreds of Cambridge students and professors were called up to fight. The university quad was converted into a war hospital and strict rationing made it difficult for Ramanujan to get access to enough vegetables to sustain his strict vegetarian diet. Wait, what? So food was being restricted in gear up for World War One? Kind of sounds like what's happening now man-made in a way, but I just thought I'd point that out. Despite these challenges, his time at Cambridge was incredibly productive. Together with Hardy, Ramanujan made significant contributions in mathematical analysis, number theory, infinite series, and continued fractions over the course of five years. But the England of the early 20th century wasn't an easy place for a foreigner. And academia has always suffered from elitism. As a young Indian man of little formal education, Ramanujan had plenty of doubters when he first arrived on these shores. But as he casually solved mathematical problems that many of the world's greatest thinkers confidently believed to be literally unsolvable, even his most ardent detractors were eventually forced to accept his brilliance. 
1917, he was elected to the London Mathematical Society. And the following year, he became only the second Indian in history to be elected a Fellow of the Royal Society. Six months after that, he became the first Indian to be elected as a Fellow of Trinity College, Cambridge. But just when Ramanujan was finally getting the recognition he deserved, he fell ill. He suffered with ill health throughout most of his life, as I've mentioned, but this time was different. The diagnosis was tuberculosis, but none of the treatments he was given seemed to do anything. Sadly, there was a very good reason for that. These days, it's thought Ramanujan actually suffered from a condition called amoebic dysentery, a parasitic liver infection that was common in Madras at the time. Had his doctors recognised the symptoms for what they were, the infection could likely have been resolved, but left undiagnosed and untreated, it was fatal. Ramanujan spent the final year of his life back in India with his wife, continuing to work right up until his death in 1920. He was only 32 when he passed away. At the time, he was already widely regarded as a truly brilliant mathematician. A genius who'd redefined the boundaries in almost every area of mathematics he turned his attention to, and invented several new areas entirely. But perhaps the craziest part of Ramanujan's story is that for all the acclaim he received during his lifetime, it turns out we didn't even know the half of it. Throughout his life, Ramanujan kept his many thousands of discoveries in four large notebooks. Like the book that first inspired him, he recorded these theorems without preamble or explanation in the form of page after page of equations. It was all excellent work. The trouble was, without much in the way of supporting information, it wasn't always clear what the point of it all was. Many of the theorems appeared to be nothing more than interesting mathematical facts, kind of like 2 plus 2 equals 4, only a hell of a lot more complicated. That's probably why much of the work was left largely untouched in the years after his death. It also didn't help that his theorems were all recorded without proofs, meaning the majority were essentially unverified. But recent decades have seen renewed interest in his work. Talented mathematicians have dedicated entire careers to making sense of Ramanujan's 4,000 or so formulas, almost all of which have now been proven. And it turns out that most of his apparently pointless theorems aren't actually so pointless after all. In fact, many have been linked to deep mathematical principles and discoveries that it would have taken the rest of the world almost a hundred years to finally begin to understand. To this day, nobody's really quite sure how he did it. He simply seems to have possessed a level of mathematical intuition that borders on the supernatural. Perhaps renowned physicist Freeman Dyson said it best when describing Ramanujan's unique brand of genius as a sort of magic trick the rest of us don't understand. Many of the areas of mathematics that Ramanujan either advanced or developed sound pretty meaningless to anyone who isn't a university-grade mathematician, i.e. basically everyone, but the areas of science his work is still being applied to, even today, will be familiar to pretty much everyone. More than a hundred years since his death, Ramanujan's remarkable mathematical discoveries are being used to help us understand cutting-edge science, like string theory, 
and the properties of black holes. In my recent video on hollow earth theory, I compared the way each generation of scientists and thinkers builds on the work of the last to a wall of knowledge that our species has been scaling since the days of wooden tools. But that wall analogy makes an assumption that each generation actually has access to the cumulative knowledge that came before it. But Ramanujan knew almost nothing about the work of the mathematicians who preceded him. And he had no formal training in the field of pure mathematics until his late 20s. Which is something that almost all of the great mathematicians in history had had on their side. And yet, from this lowly starting point, Srivanasa Ramanujan changed the field of mathematics forever, making discoveries we still haven't fully understood a hundred years later. To think that he was employed as a clerk until his mid-twenties is mind-blowing. That's like finding the next Sir Isaac Newton working at Burger King. It's tantalizing to wonder what might have been had Ramanujan been given access to more complete mathematical education from a younger age, and what he might have achieved had he not died so tragically young. But perhaps we should simply be grateful for what we did get, because that was something truly incredibly special. He may not have started out life on top of humanity's wall of knowledge, but as it turns out, that didn't really matter. Ramanujan just built his own. Thanks, Thanks for, for watching. watching. Did he build his own or did he understand how to unlock it? See, I urge you again. I don't care how much you hate algebra, how much you hate fractions, how much you hate math. Go to the lowest level of math you can and just do some problems and then move to the next one. You know what a great uh, example of this is? Uh what is that? There's like a tutoring program. Kumon. Kumon. So Kumon, people pay to have their kids go to Kumon. And what they do is they give them books and all they do is solve problems all the time. The same shit over and over again. Multiplication, hundreds of pages of it, just constantly doing it. And you're like, this is boring. I've done this before. And as you do it, it unlocks. You know, the fact that he failed in English and other things is because they were wordy. I remember when I was in the third grade and I was already in like the nerd programs, but in New York City, they always had us take something called regents exams and regent exams were kind of like SATs for every year to see where you fall with people within your age group. And even though I was a nerd, I would take them and there would be, you know, English and math. Um, and then they started to get more intricate in topics. But I remember that, you know, in my English, it would be horrible. My, my score would be horrible. Whereas in my math, it would be like super off the charts. It would be like over 100. Like I would be a 99.999 percentile. And the reason is because English in itself, if you look at it from a mathematical perspective, it makes no sense. This is why I say that the English language is the poorest language because it does not articulate in, in equations. Whereas you see French, Spanish, uh, you know, Greek, Russian, all those have patterns of past tense, future tense, where in the English language, it's uh, more common core. 
And you can see that the one thing that we've seen society start doing is urge children to use computers to do intricate mathematics and dumb down the way they think of numbers. And this is intentional because at the bottom of it, at the heart of it, everything comes down to math. And if people were taught the right way to embrace it, it wouldn't be so foreign. And if they were taught ways to have it applied, it would totally make sense. And then everyone, well, I guess you need high computing power and a few upgrades, but you would be able to crunch a lot of possibilities through equations to determine where terminal nodes or fixed high probability nodes would be. It's kind of like statistics. You have 10 people. You know they all like coffee. You know that three of them don't, um, three of them like dark coffee, two of them like blonde coffee, and the rest like medium roast. What are the possibilities that if they all get together, that they all agree that they are going to brew medium roast? It's a lot higher because more of them like medium roast. But there is a possibility that someone will be like, you know what? I know it's just one guy who likes a blonde roast. Let's do it. Right. And it's more likely that they'll succeed to the blonde roast rather than the dark roast that are three. Why? This is these are statistics. Think about it in a more applicable sense, because dark roast is off putting to those on medium roast and medium roasts and and blonde roast will be off-putted from dark roast. Do you get what I'm saying? Blonde is the highest in caffeine, but it's a lighter taste. So everyone would probably, so the possibilities would be, you know, uh, 52% would go for medium roast, right? Uh, about, you know, 40% would be for blonde. And then you would have the minuscule percentage for the dark roast. You see, this is how it is. It's simple math simple math and it totally unravels everything. So having said that, now let's go to something fun. 10 photos that can prove time travel exists. And why am I going here? You'll see. Let's jump to that topic and have a little fun. Why not? Right? As I do, all of the plots from, from various fantasy novels or sci-fi films that have been released that tell the many stories of time travel. The thought of traveling into the distant future or the distant past has often appealed to us as we strive to know more about mankind and how we managed to survive for as long as we have. What will the world look like in 200 years? What would you say to your younger self if you were to meet? How accurate are some of the most important stories from history? Scientists claim to have put theories of time travel to rest, claiming that it's entirely impossible. Theologists also chime in to say, what's done is done. You can't rewrite history. However, some people still argue that time travel may be possible and that we could have already met a time traveler at some point in the past. Today, we present to you 10 photos that may prove time travel exists. If you could travel back in time to any point in history, when would it be? What would you hope to see there? Share your story in the comments. Is this 1930s painting evidence of time travel? This work is a famous painting from 1937, which was named Mr. Pynchon and the Selling of Springfield. 
At first glance, it doesn't reveal anything too unusual. It shows a scene from colonial times as an Indian sits in a boat and looks like he's having a good time. It looks like he's probably about to transport a large load of cargo in his boat. But what is he looking at? It can hardly be denied that the object in his hands looks like a smartphone. The dark spot on the back even looks like the lens of the camera. Though this would be impossible, right? What is the man holding in his hand? A stone tablet or a kind of sculpture? Maybe even a compass? It's too difficult to say for sure, but theories have been running wild since this painting debuted online several years ago, especially since he's the only person with an object like this. All the other Indians in the area are staring around, waiting to depart. Is this truly a time traveler with a smartphone? Let us know what you think in the comments. Is Greta Thunberg a time traveler? Whether you love her or hate her, I'm sure all of us know who Greta Thunberg is by this point. The teenager has been making the headlines for over a year now. Even though she's still very young, Greta has dedicated her life to proving the impact of climate change and what it may mean for humanity if major changes aren't made in our day-to-day -day lives. She's very adamant about her position and isn't afraid to stand up against major politicians to let her voice be heard. Some people jokingly claim that she's a time traveler who has come from the future to save our planet. This may sound completely ridiculous, but it's not as crazy as some of the other theories we've heard over the years about lizard people running the government. All right, I wanted to pause that. So Greta Thunberg. So they found an, a photo of her that may uh, look like her from the past, or maybe they're just making it up. And now they're saying, oh, she's got balls. She can talk to them. There's a lot of kids that can talk to them. They just don't get propped up. So she's simply a prop. So let's skip over that one. All right. However, this strange theory about Greta is actually backed up by some photographic evidence. Take a look at this photo and let us know what you think in the comments. We know that people can look alike, but this 120-year-old photo shows a girl looking for gold who looks a lot like Greta Thunberg. Does Greta's mission to save the planet go this far back in time? If that is the case and this photo is proof, she's obviously not only active in today's world, but may travel far back in time to let her voice be heard as well. But if this is true, why are the ice caps still melting? Is John Travolta from the past? This photo has recently shown up on eBay where someone was putting it up for sale. It's supposed to be the ultimate proof that John Travolta is also a time traveler. At first, you might think it's not that special that someone looks like John Travolta but was born many years ago. But there's something truly strange about this photo. The person in the photo doesn't just look like John Travolta, it seems like he's the exact same person. The two have the same exact eyes, the same hairline, and even the same chin structure. In addition, John Travolta is a fairly mysterious man anyway, which has only reinforced this theory now that John has become so deeply involved in the world of Scientology. After all, the so-called religion believes in reincarnation, and if that's true, then time travel is no longer an illogical concept. All right, so like I said, we're having a little fun. These aren't exact, but I'm going to show you 
other things that will help you deduce the math probabilities of such occurrences. So, you know, a lot of this is BS. There's a lot of people that look like me, right? So let's go. How long has John Travolta been around and why doesn't he seem to be aging so nicely? While cosmetic surgery has come a long way in recent years, is this really the secret to John's youth or is there something else at play here? Does this photo prove that time travel is possible? As we become the Photoshop generation, we know that pictures may not tell the full story when it comes to history or mysterious events that have been posted online. It's so easy to edit a photo and make it appear to show something that never happened. But there are pictures that are so old and can be found in official textbooks that we can say nothing has been edited here. And these photos are completely legitimate. That is also the case with this image. As you can see, a man is sitting down, relaxed on a stone ledge, and just looking towards the camera. But something is very strange about this man. Is it just me? Or does the man seem totally out of place? He's wearing a sports shirt, baggy pants, and no hat. Instead, he lets the wind blow through his oddly modern hairstyle, which also doesn't match the time period in which the photo was taken. To his right, a woman points her finger at him, and on the left, a man looks over at him very excitedly. It seems as if the man came from another time, and those around him are just now noticing. This also makes sense because if he were just an everyday man, why would someone have taken a photo of him in the first place? Did the U.S. discover time travel during the Cold War? A U.S. lawyer by the name of Andrew Basiago has been trying to uncover the truth about the Pegasus Project for some time. This was a top-secret U.S. mission during the Cold War. The whole purpose of the project was to find a way to manipulate the space-time continuum so that the United States could win the war against Russia. To make things even stranger, Basiago himself claimed that he was sent back in time to attend Abraham Lincoln's famous Gettysburg Address in 1863. His father also knew about this and worked on the project until it was discontinued in 1968, as it was deemed far too dangerous. Apparently, scientists used Einstein's theory of relativity and the possibility of wormholes to allow people to travel through time. It may sound completely insane, but why would a seasoned, educated lawyer with stories like this voluntarily damage his reputation in such a serious way? So let's talk about this for a second. I think I have a video from 2018 somewhere on one of my YouTube channels where I showcase some schematics. So how would someone travel in time and change the future? That doesn't happen. Here's what happens. You travel to different possibilities. Lincoln assassinated. Lincoln went to dinner. Lincoln went to a ballet instead of an opera. Lincoln went and had a steak dinner in another state. Lincoln didn't go to Gettysburg, but he went somewhere else. Lincoln went over here. Lincoln went over there. And all these different possibilities. And then you zoom to the future where you came from to see what changes occur. And then you go back to where your origin is and say, okay, so this is what needs to happen in hours to get that outcome. So then you come to today 
right? And you're like, okay, so what Lincoln has to do is he has to take his hat off when he speaks. That's the only timeline where something changes. So then you go um, uh, into another timeline and then hop back into your timeline and get the hat to come off. And then you zoom back to the other timeline and then back to yours to see that now those two lines have collapsed. I hope that makes sense. I'll try to explain that going more forward. Does this punk come from another time? A few short glances are enough for you to see that this photo is definitely from another period of time. The way people are dressed, the horses, the carriages, the boats and houses, everything indicates that this image was captured long ago. In the midst of the hustle and bustle of daily life, another person joins in on this photo, but he doesn't really fit in with everyone else. A man can be seen in the middle of this photo who is referred to as the punk by people who first noticed him. Again, it's difficult to understand why this person, many decades before the punk movement, was walking around with such a haircut and wearing a sleeveless shirt and suspenders. It's unlikely to be someone who was simply 70 years ahead of the punk trend. This image really helps explain the theories surrounding time travelers, as it seems incredibly strange that a man would expose himself to such ridicule at the time, simply to sport such an odd and off-the-wall haircut and clothing style. But again, stranger things have happened. What is this man holding in his hand on the beach? Similar to the previous photo, which shows an Indian who appears to be holding a smartphone, the man in this photo is also looking at a strange object in his hand that looks shockingly like a modern piece of tech. One thing is clear. Here, too, the picture shows that it came from another time period. It was shot in September of 1943. And again, the person stands out not only because of their behavior, but also because of their strange clothes that don't really fit into the style of the time period. In addition to this, the man in the photo looks suspiciously downwards and in his entire posture from body to hands is reminiscent of a smartphone user that you may see on every street corner today. If it's not a cell phone, what else could he be holding in his hands? There were no Game Boys at the time, nor were there any other portable gadgets or computers. Who knows what this man may be up to? But it certainly doesn't seem logical that he'd just be looking at a rock or any other handheld object from that time period. Did Charlie Chaplin witness a time traveler? In 2010, a clip was uploaded to YouTube showing a largely unknown scene from the film The Circus. This was a classic movie starring Charlie Chaplin. But here, too, a person appears who, in a strange way, seems as if she doesn't belong there. The woman you see in the background is holding a strange device to her ear. It looks just like a smartphone, or at the very least, a cell phone. Cell phones were obviously not around when this movie was filmed. Released back in 1928, it was a very different time for most people, and the idea of a mobile telephone would not pop up for another 50 years. Some experts say that this is some kind of hearing aid device and would have been very popular at the time. But what would this woman be trying to hear? The sounds of a busy street and traffic? Who knows, but this definitely looks like a cell phone to me. Has this hipster traveled back in time? We still have one last example for you of a completely strange-looking person in an old photo. 
This photo made its way around the internet recently because it was confirmed to be a legitimate, unedited photograph. This 1941 photo shows what is probably the first hipster in world history. He's in a small crowd of people on the day the South Fork Bridge opened in British Columbia. As you can see, he stands out because he's wearing sunglasses that are far too modern. He's also wearing a shirt that seems to have a printed logo on it, something that would not become popular for another 40 to 50 years. There have been many attempts to explain this photo over the years. One of the more popular theories claims that sunglasses like this... All right, so... For those of you that like rabbit holes and have the time, why don't you figure out who that kind of looks like? Forget the fact that he's a hipster. Try to think what younger version of who that looks like. That's just a, an idea. This is how you deduce rabbit holes. The more you go down it, the more you see that it's true or not. So you just have to think, who does this look like and why are they wearing a mask? because that's not normal, right? Would have existed at the time, but they would have been incredibly expensive. The same theory goes for his t-shirt and camera. Cameras like this would have also existed, but would have cost hundreds of dollars. His t-shirt could very well be a luxury item as well, with the logo on the front being hand-stitched rather than printed. Is Nicolas Cage a vampire? This is yet another photo that was sold on eBay a while back. For a massive $1 million, you could buy a picture of a person who lived in 1870 and looks exactly like Nicolas Cage. It's not known whether he simply shared the same gene pool or if this person could be a distant relative of Nicholas. However, the most likely solution seems to be obvious. Like John Travolta, Nicholas Cage may have the gift of traveling through time. Other sources are firmly convinced that Nicholas Cage is a vampire or even a zombie, but this seems a bit far-fetched. However, this would explain his odd behavior over the years, characterized by eccentric outbursts and overdramatic facial expressions. So, is it possible that Nicolas Cage may be a time-traveling vampire? Well, well, virtually... No, that's not a possibility. But we can talk about what... Oh... I have stated this. Mars is your past. Venus is your future. And now we're going to kind of hop into Van Braun's ideas for the Mars vision. And just so you know who he is, I thought I could share this video because it's important you know who was behind this book called The Mars Project that actually stated that Mars was ruled by the Elons of Mars. <laughs> yeah, he wrote it. Yeah, he's not a C.S. Lewis. He's actually quite an important man. Do you know that it's been almost 50 years since humans walked on the surface of the moon? Of course you do. Anyone who loves space exploration obsesses about the last Apollo landings and counts the passing years of sadness. Sure, SpaceX, Blue Origins, and the new NASA Space Launch System rocket offer a tantalizing future in space. But 50 years, ouch, so much lost time. What would happen 
if we could go back in time, what amazing and insane plans did NASA have to continue exploring the solar system? What alternative future could we have now, 50 years later? In order to answer this question, I've teamed up with my space historian friend, Amy Shira Title, who runs the Vintage Space blog and YouTube channel. We've decided to look at two groups of missions that never happened. In her part, Amy talks about the Apollo Applications Program, NASA's original plans before the human exploration of the moon was shut down. More Apollo missions, the beginnings of a lunar base, and even a human flyby of Venus. In my half of the series, I look at Werner von Braun's insanely ambitious plans to send a human mission to Mars. Put our two episodes together, and you can imagine a space exploration future with all the ambition of the Kerbal Space Program. Keep in mind here that we're not going to constrain ourselves with the pesky laws of physics and the reality of finances. These ideas were cool and considered by NASA engineers, but they weren't necessarily the best ideas or even feasible. So, two parts. Tackle them in any order you like. My part begins right now. Werner von Braun, of course, was the architect for NASA's spaceflight efforts during the space race. It was under von Braun's guidance that NASA developed the various flight hardware for the Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo missions, including the massive Saturn V rocket, which eventually put human crew of astronauts on the moon and safely returned them back to Earth. Von Braun was originally a German rocket scientist, pivotal to the Nazi rocket team which developed the ballistic V-2 rockets. These unmanned rockets could carry a one-ton payload 800 kilometers away. They were developed in 1942, and by 1944, they were being used in their war against Allied targets. By the end of the war, von Braun coordinated the surrender to the Allies, as well as 500 of his engineers, including their equipment and plans for future rockets. In Operation Paperclip, the German scientists were captured and transferred to the White Sands Proving Ground in New Mexico, where they would begin working on the U.S. rocket efforts. Before the work really took off, though, von Braun had a couple of years of relative downtime. In 1947 and 1948, he wrote a science fiction novel about the human exploration of Mars. The novel itself wasn't published right away because it was terrible but it also contained a detailed appendix containing all the calculations, mission parameters, hardware designs to carry out this mission to Mars. The appendix was way better than the novel. In 1952, this appendix was published in Germany as Das Mars Project, or The Mars Project, and an English version was published a few years later. Collier's Weekly Magazine did an eight-part special on The Mars Project in 1952, captivating the world's imagination. With a little Googling, you should be able to get your hands on the original Mars Project book or the Collier's Magazine, and I'll put a link in the notes. Enjoy the book. So here's the plan. In the Mars Project, Von Braun envisioned a vast armada of spaceships that would make the journey from Earth to Mars. They would send a total of 10 giant spaceships, each of which would weigh about 4,000 tons. Just for comparison, fully loaded Saturn V rocket could carry about 140 tons of payload into low Earth orbit. In other words, they'd need a lot of rockets. 
Von Braun estimated that 953 stage rockets should be enough to get everything into orbit. All the ships would be assembled in orbit and 70 crew members would take to their stations for an epic journey. They'd blast the rockets and carry out Mars home and transfer, which would take them eight months to make the journey from Earth to Mars. The flotilla consisted of seven orbiters, huge spheres that would travel to Mars, go into orbit, and then return back to Earth. It also consisted of three glider landers, which would enter the Martian atmosphere and stay on Mars. Once they reached the Red Planet, they would use powerful telescopes to scan the Martian landscape and search for safe and scientifically interesting landing spots. The first landing would happen at one of the planet's polar caps, which von Braun figured was the only guaranteed flat surface for landing. At this point, it's important to note that von Braun assumed that the Martian atmosphere was about as thick as Earth's. He figured you could use huge winged gliders to aerobrake into the atmosphere and land safely on the surface. He was wrong. The atmosphere on Mars is actually only 1% as thick as Earth's, and these gliders would never work. Newer missions like SpaceX's Red Dragon and Interplanetary Transport Ship will use rockets to make a powered landing. But I think if Von Braun knew this, he could have modified his plans to still make the whole thing work. Once the first expedition landed at one of the polar caps, they'd make a 6,400-kilometer journey across the harsh Martian landscape to the first base camp location at the equator. And then they'd build a landing strip. Then the two more gliders would detach from the flotilla and bring the majority of the explorers to the base camp, and a skeleton crew would remain in orbit. Once again, I think it's important to note that von Braun didn't truly understand how awful the surface of Mars really is. The almost non-existent atmosphere and extreme cold would require much more sophisticated gear than he'd planned for. But still, God admires ambition. At this point in the story, Von Braun's Mars adventurers have set up shop on the surface of the Red Planet, and shortly, I'll let you know the thrilling conclusion. First, though, it's time to thank a few of our amazing patrons. Matt Dalby, Trip Bishop, Tom Harshman, JM Autobot, and the rest of our 731 patrons for their generous support. If you like what we're doing and you want to help out, head over to patreon.com slash universe today. With the Mars Exploration Team on the ground, their first task was to turn their glider launchers into rockets again. They would stand them up and get them prepped to blast off from the surface of Mars when their mission was over. The Martian explorers would set up an inflatable habitat and then spend the next 400 days surveying the area. Geologists would investigate the landscape, studying the composition of the rocks, Botanists would study the hardy Martian plant life and see what kinds of earth plants would grow. Zoologists would study the local animals, of course, and help figure out what was dangerous and what was safe to eat. Archaeologists would search the region for evidence of ancient Martian civilizations and study the vast canal network seen from Earth by astronomers. Perhaps they'd even meet the hardy Martians that built those canals, struggling to survive to this day. Once again, in the 1940s, we thought Mars would be like Earth, but more of a desert. There'd be plants and animals and maybe even people adapted to the hardy environment. With our modern knowledge, this sounds quaint today. The most brutal desert on Earth is a paradise compared to the nicest place on Mars. Von Braun did the best he could 
with the best science at the time. Finally, at the end of their 400 days on Mars, the astronauts would blast off from the surface of Mars, meet up with the orbiting crew, and the entire flotilla would make the return journey to Earth using the minimum fuel Mars-Earth transfer trajectory. Although Von Braun got a lot of things wrong about his Martian mission plans, such as the thickness of the atmosphere and the habitability of Mars, got a lot of things right. He anticipated a mission plan that required the least amount of fuel by assembling pieces in orbit using the Hohmann transfer trajectory, exploring Mars for 400 days to match up Earth and Mars orbits. He developed the concept of using orbiters, detachable landing craft, and ascent vehicles used by the Apollo moon missions. The missions never happened, obviously, but von Braun's ideas served as the backbone for all future human Mars mission plans. I'd like to give a massive thanks to space historian David Portry. He wrote an amazing book called Humans to Mars, which details 50 years of NASA plans to send humans to the red planet, including a fantastic synopsis of the Mars Project. And I'll put a link to his book in the show notes. You can read it for free from NASA's website. I asked David about how von Braun's ideas influence human spaceflight. And he said this, the reliance on a conjunction class long stay mission lasting 400 days, that was gutsy. In the 1960s, NASA and contractor planners generally stuck with an opposition class short stay mission. In recent years, we've seen more emphasis on the conjunction class mission mode, sometimes with a relatively short period on Mars, but lots of time in orbit. Other times, with almost the whole mission spent on the surface. Von Braun had the right idea. So what do you think about Von Braun's ambitious plans to send humans to Mars? How do you think this compares to our more modern plans? Are there other ideas about human colonization of Mars that you'd like me to look into? What would you like Amy and me to investigate next? Let me know your thoughts in the comments. Next episode. So before we get into the next, you know, theory, um, uh, we're going to listen to uh, Mandelbrot. I want to bring to your attention something. So radiation, right? There's different uh, responses that your environment can have. It will... Uh, you know, cause harm to DNA strands. It will, uh, you know, uh, make things glow either green or blue, depending on the richness of things. So if it's carbon based, it will glow green. If it is oxygen rich, it'll glow blue. Now, here's a little bit of fun science. So, all right, let me, let me like see how I can make this science understandable. Radio Bactrim. There is a bacteria that is found in air quote space that was found to be irradiated with radiation. I've talked about this before, where its DNA completely gets annihilated, but then reconstructs itself. What they did realize is, is that when they irradiated the bacterium in, you know, a certain environment, like, I don't know, just regular air, right? Um, it would completely glow green in the area. And then what they noticed was, you know, the expansion of the radiation in the containment unit they had. So they wanted to see if there was anything that the radiation could cook, 
right? Like, I don't know, increase the temperature of that would make the DNA die, right? And what they did was they created this container that was packed with ice, solid ice. And they put the bacterium in there and then they irradiated it. The weird thing is that the outside of the ice had no readings of radiation, but the ice would glow blue because the oxygen would interact with it in some way. So it contained it within itself. And what they noticed was, is that this radiobacterium was constantly breaking its DNA, rebuilding it and breaking again because the uh, ice would contain the radiation and continue to perpetuate it. So it was like a containment thing. That was really bizarre. It's interesting science that if carbon-based environment, it would be green. And if the radiation was within an encircled container of ice, it would glow blue. And when you measure the radiation outside of the container that contained the ice inside, you would have very minimal radiation, whereas when you had it in a regular environment, the radiation would be off the charts on the side. So it felt as if the scientist found that the ice encircling the radiation would actually contain it, but it would not decay fast enough. So it would not decay fast enough, meaning that it wouldn't, it would put it in like a suspended case. So oxygen would make it glow blue. So uh, oxygen is usually not included in the equation, considering that our atmosphere is only 21% and nitrogen is high, but we are carbon-based organisms. Therefore, hence the green too and the nitrogen, uh, which on a chemical basis would make sense uh, considering the electrons surrounding the atoms uh, where there are electrons surrounding where oxygen is more composed of. And uh, let's just say you can preserve radiation and an irradiated environment when it's contained and encircled in ice. And that they found from the radiobacterium. And you can look into it. That bacteria was actually discovered in tin food where they use radiation to, you know, get rid of all the germs, but that one survived and they accidentally found it. So, you know, I, I just wanted to bring that up. And now, so that's, that's one factor of science. Now let's get into the time science. Let's listen to Mandelbrot himself talking about the equations himself. Uh, you know, he's not very, he's, he's, you know, there's a saying, if you can't dumb it down enough, you don't know it well enough. Now, I don't want to say that he doesn't know it well enough, but sometimes we have findings and we um, 
discover things or understand portions of things, but not in their entirety. So this applies here. Even though he's a genius, this applies here. Now, I would like to mention this matter of, of, um, of uh, multifactor time as trading time because it's so fundamental. Again, uh, the criticism which I heard of uh, Bachelet's model of uh, constant volatility in time was that um, it didn't take account of what is observed by just uh, either watching or listening or reading newspaper, that some days the market is asleep, not much is happening, things drift up and down because somebody is getting married or somebody has died and they just have to, to buy and sell, but nothing is happening really, kind of background noise is, is, is ruling the, the roost. And uh, other days, extraordinary turbulent stock market. Headlines, the front page of newspapers, the market went up or down by a huge amount, um, fortunes were made, fortunes were lost, etc., etc. The intuitive feeling that uh, is uh, in the mind of uh, many people in stock market is that, uh, uh, in a certain sense, market moves fast or slowly. Now, the implementation of it could have been to have a model of rapid and slow variation, which would not be itself fractal, which would have derivatives, rates of variation. Well, that might have been tried, was not tried, I think, very seriously. Whatever the case is, there is a very, very tempting way of introducing fractality, which means scaling variance throughout, which is by including in the definition of that time, this property of scaling. And that's what I did. And a first attempt actually was, came very early in the 60s in a paper together with Taylor, which I showed that if price, if, 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 um, if uh, the trading time was moving in a certain fashion by jumps and jumps and jumps, my early model of 63 would be uh, resumed and uh, would apply. But immediately it was clear that uh, this uh, fractal time, as it was called, was very primitive and something richer had to be, was needed. And multifractal time fills this gap. Now, in this model, uh, a very strong assumption is made that the brown motion or fraction brown motion is independent of trading time. That's a very strong assumption. I don't, I'm stupid, I'm very surprised that uh, this strong assumption does not immediately hit uh, some kind of difficulty because I don't think they could be independent. But again, this is a matter of method. You make, a, you make the simple assumption and you see how far it goes. You don't agonize by saying, I'm oversimplifying, I'm doing it wrong, I should be more careful, I should be more, more, more sophisticated, I should listen to more information. You just see how much a simple model contains without annoying it. Therefore, all this modeling is based very fundamentally on distinction between, how to say, traditional models and fractal modeling. By that, I mean the following distinction, which I could have made in, in other contexts, but which I might as well make here. In a, uh, when I was uh, taught about uh, modeling in science, it was clear that if I have a simple model, simple construction, it is simple behavior. If I want to get complicated behavior, I must have a complicated construction. This uh, was sort of obvious. Uh, you look at prices, here is complicated, I must have a complicated construction. A priori, a simple construction just could not do it. What is true in fractals throughout is the opposite. You start with a very simple construction and you get a behavior 
which seems to be extraordinarily complicated. And it's not complicated because you put in a great deal of um, rules, but because what looks complicated, in fact, obeys some underlying, great, a great deal of underlying deep order. And so before resorting to further wrinkles, to further tuning of the model, it's imperative to see how far would the model, a certain model go, and then take this model as basis for further building. Because if you build starting from brown motion, you must, you must, you don't really start until a pyramid of variable volatility, of discontinuities, of everything was built, and then you must still add to it. In my model, you get variable volatility, discontinuities, and everything at will from a simple formula. As long as it works, it must not be, be criticized a priori, only criticized on its level of success. All right, so for those of you that are able to get a pen and paper, I want to show you what fractal or number patterns are on a very simple basis. Now, I'm going to show you a trick that maybe was leaked from a teacher and someone made money on it, but I'm going to show you a trick. And then I'll show you how I made it for all the numbers. This is something I did as a child. So I want you to take a pen and paper, and I would like you to write down the following numbers. 15 squared, 25 squared, and 35 squared. So let me help you with that. So 15 squared, as we know in traditional mathematics, what we do is 15 times 15. Well, we don't have to actually. Looking at the number itself, the only thing you have to do is square five, which is the number closest to the exponent. So if you square five, you write down 25. Pretty simple, right? It's so simple. Well, why would I write down 25, Tori? Well, 5 squared is 25, right? That, that's something that we all understand, correct? So you have to think, all right, then what, Tori? What else do I do? Well, the second number in this number that you wrote down, which is the number 15, is 1. So we're working from left to right. What's one number larger than the number 1? 2. What is two times one? Two. You write that down. Now your answer is 225. 25 squared. You do the same process. Five squared. 25. What's a number larger than two? Three. Three times two is six. The answer is 625. Then you go to 35 squared. Five squared. 25. What's a number larger than three? Four. Four times three, one th 12. So your answer is 1,225. That formula, that pattern only works for numbers that end in five. So I will take you now <laughs> to the next one, which is going to be very interesting for you. A little bit, few more steps. Let's go to the numbers that end in three. So now... This is how you understand how patterns evolve, because if a computer actually plots all of these, right, suddenly you see a Mandelbrot. I kid you not. 
So here we go. 13 squared, 23 squared, and 33 squared. So here we go. What's the number? 13. 1 and 3. So 3 squared is 9. Write down the number 9. Then you multiply. I'm trying to remember because there's the 4s and the 2s. Hold on. Shit. It's been a long time because I usually do this in my head and I have to slow the whole process down. It's, um, it's 6. Yes, so then you multiply three um, times two, and you get six. And then you take one, and you square it, and you get one. So your answer is 169. We go to three, 23, so three squared is nine. I'm doing this really quick in my head. And then we go um, two, is it two? Yeah, two times two, four. Hold on. Five times two is 10. Sorry. Plus the carry the two, two, one. Hold on. I'm trying to get this um, simplified. See, this was totally on a whim. I never planned for any of this shit. So let me just do this quickly so that I can. I'm still confusing it with the six and the four pattern. There's a pattern. Man, you know, I memorized all of these from one through nine. When I was a kid, I used to do this shit all the time. So eight. Um, pattern is three, eight, six, nine, two, two, nine, six, six, I'm trying to see, three, squared, nine, three, six, and three. My gosh, why is this? I need to pull my notes. Why am I looking at the, the four? Give me a second, you guys. I'm going to pull it out. I have to remember which one this pattern is. Um, three, six. So it's six. Three times two is six. Um, six squared is 12. And then you carry the one. Two squared is four, five. Okay, I got it. Let me just make sure that that was the right one. So it's nine, nine, nine. Squared 18, carry the 1, 3 squared, 9, 10. Okay, here we go. So I'm going to just do this one more time on the 23, just to make sure that I did that right. 9, I don't want to give it to you wrong. 3 times 2 is 6. 6 squared is 12. Put the 2 down, carry the 1. 2 squared, 1, 4. Okay, um, 2 squared, 4 plus 1 is 5. All right, here we go. So now when you go to 23 squared and 33 squared, here's what you do. So it's 3 squared, you get a 9, and you write it down. Then you take the two and the three and you multiply them. You get six and then you square them with two and you get 12. You write down the number two and you carry the one. Then you take the number two. You square that, obviously, right? And you get four. You add the carryover, five. Your answer is 529. Trying it again with 33 squared. Three squared is nine. Then you take the two numbers, 33, and you multiply them. You get nine. Nine times two is 18. You write down the eight, you carry the one. Three squared is nine. Nine plus one is 10. Your answer is 1,089. There we go. You know, if I had like a visual board, I'd do it. But if you continue like that, so that's the three one. So you 
you can actually input that formula, which is any number that ends in three. So if we do 43, it would be three squared, which is nine. Four times three is 12. 12 squared is 24. Write down the four, carry the two. Four squared is 16. Add the two, 18. Your answer is 1,849. And there you go. So um, <laughs> I would like to make sure that you use the numbers as they are. I know I say square, but you actually have to use the idea of square of doubling it to yourself. So um, every single number from one through nine has its own pattern. And every single pattern gives you a design. If you were to input the formulas that I've put in, one and one, you know, like for my, for my formula for three, five is really easy, right? There's a specific formula for that. You know, you square, you have the number, you see it in front of you, two and five, and you take the five and you times it by itself. You get 25. You write down the whole answer, 25. Then you, the next number in the number 25 is two. So you take the number greater than two and multiply it with it. So it would be two times three is six. So your answer is 625. In the formula for the number three, it's different. It has different things. So you would actually sit there and say 23 squared is you look at the number 23 and you take the first number on the left and you square it and you write down the number nine. Then you take both the numbers, two and three, and you multiply them. That gives you six. Now you multiply that with the exponent, which is two, and you get 12. You write down the number two, and then you carry the one. You know you have one left over because you're only putting one for the threes, right? Odd number um, and minuscule number, I guess. And then you carry that one. So then your number is 23. So what do you do? You actually square two, two times two. Well, you multiply it. Two times two is four. You add the one and your answer is five. So now it's 529. Every single number. See, this is the type of stuff I did in kindergarten in the first grade because I wanted to find it to be easier, right? I didn't like the way math was being taught. It was being taught to do steps on paper that were way too many when there's a pattern and relationship between the numbers. So hopefully, um, you know, you can, you can figure that out. And the reason I say this is because if you actually take all the numbers that end in three that are multiplied by themselves and you input their answers on a plot, they all give you a pattern. That's the point. See, people will be like, well, we could just do it the other way. That's not my point. My point is that all the numbers that end in three that, you know, are multiplied by themselves give you a pattern. So three times three is nine. 13 times three is 169. And if you plot that to infinity, it starts to give you a Mandelbrot. That's what I'm trying to explain to you, that all these things are interconnected. Math is at the basis of everything. Um, and this is why in other countries, they're being taught other shortcuts. Have you ever seen what how Indians learn their timetables? It's pretty insane. So um, numbers have relationships. They're not scary. You just have to understand what they're talking about. That's all. It's a sentence. The equal sign in an equation is a sentence that means true.
So why am I telling you this? Well, now we're going to we're going to look at something that um is a little bit rabbit holy. But this is called The Last President 1900 and Baron Trump's Marvelous Underground Journey 1886 by Ingersoll Lockwood where Trump's life is predicted. Now, considering the possibilities, the mathematical possibilities of that, one would have to say either someone was having conversations like with scriptwriters of The Simpsons and trying to see what edits can occur and therefore changes that maybe there's an alternate type of outcome. I want you to just think about this for a second because then we're going to hop over to Nixon and Mars. So everyone keeps seeing this number, 11-9-9-11. You have to remember that 9-11, I've told you, was something that was orchestrated so they can delay what was coming because nothing could stop what's coming. And then they tried it again in 2012. And then they, tr- they they've been delaying what outcomes were coming. So uh, unfortunately for them, 9-11 was a tipping point. They were able to get away with a bad economy. They were able to steal all your privacy. They were able to put you on a system that you voluntarily forfeited in, uh, you know, lieu of safety, right? So I, I, I want you to understand how people are looking at the numbers and I'm only don't, I'm not focusing on the conspiracy. I'm looking at the numbers because when you step back, even letters are numbers. And this is why I said the English language is poor because the mathematics behind it is weird. Like Chinese, for example, is mathematically based and I'm finding it very difficult to uh, conceive the way they write, not speak, write, um, because it doesn't coincide with the speech. So that tells me that it's rooted in math that does not coincide with speech, which is negating what all other languages on the planet do. Even Korean and Japanese is understandable mathematically, whereas Chinese is conflicting. So again, language. So you're seeing, uh, you know, 116 years later, President Trump becomes president, just like the book said, and they flip the number and it's 11-9-11. I have said this many, many times was done in order to avoid what was happening. We were supposed to have a kickoff of a civil war, and this is how they quelled it by creating their own wars. For the rest of the day, we're supposed to handle the department's communication. What do you mean, handle? They're shutting down the police van. All calls will be coming through this switchboard. And I'm going to marry Donald Trump. And I'm going to marry Donald Trump. Jesus Christ! You think you're a lady, Hillary Clinton? That's it! What? Hillary Clinton, the 42nd president. Oh, she'd be the 43rd president. All right, all right, but who's the 21st? I don't know. I have to read that out for the people that are listening to this on podcast. Let me... Okay, so Baron Trump's marvelous underground journey. It begins, everything begins in Russia. From here, Trump travels in time. In Russia, the boy receives instructions from the Don, the master of all masters. 
And it says, according to the learned Don Fum's manuscript, the portals to the world within a world, again, alternate, were situated somewhere in northern Russia, possibly. So he thought from all the indications somewhere westerly slope of the Tipper Urals. But the great thinker could not locate them with any accuracy. The people will tell thee, was the mysterious phrase that occurred again and again in the mildewed pages of his wonderful writing. The people will tell thee, ah, but what people will be learned enough to tell me that? Was the brain racking question which I asked myself, sleeping and waking at sunrise, at high noon and the sunset, at the crowing of the cock and in the silent hours of the night, the people will tell thee, said, learn Don from, ah, but what people will tell me where to find the portals to the world within a world, world within a world in Russia, northern Russia. Having dispatched an errant courier with letters to my beloved parents, informing them of my good health and whereabouts, I passed several weeks very pleasantly in Russian at the Russian capital, and then by easy stages set out for home. The elder baron came as far as Riga to meet me and brought me the best news from Castle Trump, that my dear mother was in perfect health. And that she and every man, woman, and child in and about the castle were anxiously waiting to give me a real German welcome back home. And here, dear friends, mit Heisenstein's Gross Bulger, and I take our leave to you. Funny how it was all about Russian collusion, right? And this is why I'm making this a point. Almost everything in this book, right, has come and gone. And not the way the book says, because the future is changing ever so. The uh, alternate outcomes change ever so. And either that be past or future. It's very interesting how the same things come. President Trump, Don, Russia, Germany, right? Baron. And speaking of Baron... This is quite interesting. And, and, and this is a reason that I'm pointing this out. Um, watch this. Here we go. It says there can be no titles of nobility. So while the president can name his son baron, he can't make him a baron. Now, let me also suggest that when you invoke the president's son's name here, when you try to make a little joke out of referencing Baron Trump, that does not lend credibility to your argument. It makes you look mean. It makes you look like you're attacking someone's family, the minor child of the president of the United States. Seeking Amos consent to enter into a record a, um, a tweet that the first lady of the United States just issued within the hour. that says, quote, a minor child deserves privacy and should be kept out of politics. Pamela Carlin, you should be ashamed of your very angry and obviously biased public pandering and using a child to do it, unquote. Without objection, the document will be entered into the record. I want to apologize for uh, what I said earlier about the president's son. It was wrong of me to do that. I wish the president would apologize, obviously, for the things that he's done that's wrong. But I do regret having said that. That he's done that were wrong. No. See, what they realize is that nothing can stop what's coming. Every, you know, we see it as a conspiracy theory, and it is kind of a stretch, all of it. But if you actually take a step back, 40,000 foot view and look, 
right? And look at what is being said and what is happening and where the turning points, the math and the coincidences, I mean, where does it stop? And, and, and I'm just pointing this out. This is a conspiracy theory, right? Nonetheless, a theory. Theories are very acceptable. Theories are how we come to conclusions. Theories are how we test the truth of a statement. So that's basically it. It is a theory. But in essence, theories also give more basis to statements. You know, I told you about Nixon and I told you about things, uh, you know, now they're invoking Watergate. They're trying to make it. But they think, what did Nixon do and who fucked him? But isn't known to have fucked him. The Apollo program was coming to an end. Von Braun was running through the halls of Congress, trying to convince congressmen that the next project after the Apollo program should be sending humans to Mars. Unlike many other proposals he had made in the past, that proposal actually ended up on the desk of President Richard M. Nixon. Now, a lot of people don't understand this, but the president is not only the commander-in-chief, he's the commander-in-chief of NASA. Um, NASA is actually an administrative function in our government, and it reports directly to the president of the United States. So in the early 70s, Nixon had two proposals sitting on his desk. One was, let's send somebody to Mars. The competing proposal was um, the space shuttle. Now, the space shuttle originally was a very cool concept. It is exactly what Elon Musk is trying to do with rockets right now by making them reusable. And it was a relatively small space plane that could shuttle astronauts into Earth orbit and then where you would have the capability of building a larger rocket that could go on to places like Mars. Unfortunately, the military and the uh, intelligence agencies in the United States became very interested in the space shuttle, and and a conflict developed. Um, Nixon chose the space shuttle over going to Mars, over Vaughn's program. And shortly thereafter, Von Braun resigned from NASA. Um, And not long after that, he died. Had Nixon chosen in the early 70s to go to Mars instead of Uh, building the space shuttle. We would have a colony on Mars now, and there would probably be thousands of people there. The tragedy of the space shuttle was that it was really kind of designed for the military-industrial complex rather than what NASA really had in mind originally, which which was a cheap, small, reusable rocket. The joke is that there were 11 secret missions that we know of between 1982 and 1992 in which used the space shuttle for military and intelligence purposes. We have no real idea what those were. They were classified, but we do know that they existed and that those uh, rockets were launched and used for that purpose. Here is a government agency that from day one was supposed to be completely open and transparent because we did not want other countries thinking that we looked like explorers of space and we looked like people who were only interested in intellectual curiosity and finding out more about our environment, when in fact, at the same time, we were doing military things. So for the last five decades, from 1970 at least, um, the space program has been stunted and has has gone absolutely nowhere. And that's why 
we have people like SpaceX who are going to be the first to go to land on Mars because they've created this huge hole of low cost entry into space. And governments are now losing control of space that they've had as a monopoly. And private companies are finding it quite easy to do things faster, better, and cheaper than NASA or the military can do them. And they're going to get into long-term space first. So in essence, we didn't go into space exploration because other countries were like, you're doing military stuff. So then what we did was we privatized military industrial complexes to do military stuff under the guise of private companies. Got it? So, um, so Nixon screwed everyone out of it, apparently. What a bad guy, isn't it? What a super bad guy. Or is it? Now, again, going back to it, you know, I, I saw on Rumble, someone say it's a hypothesis. Actually, theoria means it's a theory. To hypothesize is you're questioning the bringing of a theory. I've already questioned that, and now I'm theorizing. I am theorizing that when it comes down to math, right, everything, take a 40,000-foot uh, view and you can see it. Uh, Mars is your past. Venus is your future. I mean, so then before Mars, what's that planet before Mars again? Right. So we have to start thinking at what the interest is and where these are and why they're giving us planet and not giving us planets, why everything is changing, why things are being privatized. Then they want to be government controlled again. Why all this data? Why all this merging? North American Union, not a conspiracy theory, totally fucking happening, right? An EU of the Americas that Bolsonaro put his feet down. I think I told you about that years ago. You know, all of these things are coming out because they're mathematically calculated. So then we have this mathematically calculated placement. And this is, in the end, it will be debunked, sort of, but it just shows you that there are many that are involved with this. And this is what I would like to call, I don't want to say ideal placement. There we go. So one would question, what if we hopped into a timeline where we had the Home Depot and Home Depot, and then we merge them? Does the other place remain empty? Are there no people there? Because now you're going to start seeing a lot of these theories flying around when people make decisions. And, and not just to this, we're talking about the people that actually fall into these rabbit holes and focus on it rather than instead of falling into a rabbit hole, you know what you should do? You should take that 40,000 foot view and look at all the rabbit holes at once. So here is some compelling stuff, almost like the Astana video that um, may assist. Or are we living inside some sort of simulated reality? <laughs> At first, questions like these sound kind of strange. However, if you take into consideration the fast pace at which humans are evolving technologically, it doesn't sound that impossible. So the theory follows that 
maybe we're in the simulation. The odds that we're in base reality is one in billions. Time travel has been the subject of so many movies. Is it really truly a possibility? Not only is it a possibility, but we've actually already taken the baby steps and we can actually move things into the future. Take a look at this video posted by Andres Pastrana Arango YouTube channel. It was recorded in 1999 and you can actually see what's supposed to be a person holding an iPad. Now iPads did not exist in 1999. They were first developed by Apple in 2010. This and many other videos out there makes us question if time travel exists or if we're living in some sort of simulation. Right? And his face is moving, but the look at that, his face just moved, but the guy in the, the mirror is seeing the same. Yo! And recently, internet users are baffled by the mysterious and unexplained case of Javier, el único sobreviviente, a guy who says he woke up in the year 2027 all alone, no one around him due to some sort of event that happened. Now, he has been posting these kind of videos for about a few months now, and to this day, no one has a good explanation to what really is going on. Is this guy a time traveler? Is he proof that we're living in some sort of simulation? Or is it just fake? The thing is, subscribers of his have been asking him to do loads of things and go to different places, and he has done it all. Okay, Google. ¿Qué fecha es hoy? Es domingo, 3 de octubre de 2027. So what is really going on here? Right now we're going to be taking a look at his stories and videos and you're probably going to be mind blown. Are you ready? Let's go. Javier's first videos all happen in Valencia, Spain, and they show him walking in various different places, at the beach, on a shopping mall, at the street, and the list goes on. His subscribers were baffled. How come there was absolutely no one around him and how is this possible? Is he faking it? Or not. Now, the first video that Javier posted that baffled absolutely everyone was of him going into a hospital, the one he says he woke up to, absolutely no one around him. This is the video. Javier says he remembers waking up at the hospital with a document next to him, a bracelet, and that's about it. The supposed document from General Hospital Valencia dates February 10th, 2021. It says his name is Javier and he got there unconscious. Still, people did not believe him and told him to go to an airport because an airport is never empty. So he did. Notice how on this video he maintains the original background sound. In other words, there is no one there. You can't hear anyone walking, talking or anything like that. How the heck is he doing this? Javier then continues to visit different popular places, places that should be filled with people. He goes to a supermarket and there is no one there. He goes to a police station and there is no one there. He goes to a church. He goes to a pharmacy or a drugstore and there is absolutely no one there. This is when he starts visiting larger and historical places too and it's completely empty. 
So this is when people start to get creeped out. And I have to say myself also, I have no idea how he's pulling this off. His comment section was bursting with questions. Questions like, how does he have the key and access to all these different places? Why doesn't he visit other cities? And how is he able to post videos on TikTok in 2021 if he is in 2027? Well, some of these questions he was able to answer. In one video, he traveled to Madrid and it was empty. And in another video, he traveled to Barcelona. In another video, he went to a museum in Lorca and it was empty. One of his most intriguing videos is when he travels to a distant city and he finds bunkers and tunnels. People were having difficulties explaining exactly where he was. At one point in this video, people actually start questioning if Javier is indeed in the year of 2027 because they don't recognize this structure in Valencia or any other city in Spain. This is where things really take a turn. At some point, he goes to an underground bunker and he finds a document. Y he averiguado que conmigo debieron de utilizar una especie de colisionador de partículas. The document reads Experiment JESP8827. Javier, you probably don't remember who you are and you probably won't. However, know that we haven't lost connection with you and you will probably understand why in the future. Then the document goes on to explain that he was a time machine experiment from 2027 to 2021, but the experiment failed. He reached 2021, but for some reason time and space did not function as they should and he was locked in a reality where there are no animals and people around him. It even showed equations and graphics of how time travel supposedly works. By now, he had drawn the attention of mostly every internet community and everyone was talking about this. And for obvious reasons, most YouTube channels, influencers, and internet personalities were trying to debunk these videos. Here are some of the findings. I guess the first question that people started asking themselves was, did he record all this during quarantine? Well, it would be impossible to go into a hospital, a police station, a hotel, with it being completely empty. And he did all those. So the next question is, is he editing the people out using Photoshop or something like that? Well, a YouTuber went to the trouble of trying to do so. And here is the result. Yeah, getting decent results from this feature is to create a quality mask around the object that you want to remove. You'll then need to track that object by keyframing the mask throughout the whole clip. Now, this is somewhat tedious, uh, but you don't want to skimp on this step or you'll get more. In this video, this YouTuber explains how to remove a person from his recordings. He did a great job. The thing is, he took hours and hours just to remove one person at a very slow and smooth video that he did with a drone. Nevertheless, he did a great job and it would explain how Javier is doing this. However, in many of Javier's videos, he's doing fast moving recordings. In one specific video, he uses a car to leave Valencia and in this video, he drives through miles. 
there is not a single person in sight. Imagine how many hours, maybe days or even months it would take for him to remove animals, people, everything from this video. I guess the idea of using Photoshop is really good, but I'm not too sure if this is how Javier is pulling this off. There was also YouTube Archivo K. They went and said that they found out a mistake in one of Javier's videos. Leandro from Archivo K says that he found a person that was hiding in one of Javier's videos. Pessoal, esse é o vídeo que eu falei no começo, que é o vídeo exclusivo aí que eu achei o cara, uma pessoa que não conseguiu se esconder. He goes on to explain that there's one specific video of Javier's in which there is a person hiding in the background and you are able to see this supposedly through the mirror. I'm going to play this video and I'm going to show you guys exactly what Leandro is trying to say. Now pay attention to these two specific pillars. Javier is going to enter the fire department garage and he's going to make a left and he's going to open a glass door. The glass door is actually reflecting the two pillars behind them. And moments before he opens this door, we can supposedly see a person hiding behind one of these pillars. Now Leandro from Archivo K is pretty sure he found some good evidence. And he says that you can see the person hiding behind one of the pillars, not once, but twice. If you pay attention right now, you can actually see what appears to be a person hiding behind one of the pillars reflecting in the door's mirror. Now I'm not too sure if Leandro is correct, if this is indeed a person, or if it's something else. It's very difficult to say by analyzing just one video and one moment in a reflection. However, if this is indeed a person, this is a good find. There is another YouTuber who made an interesting find. In 2019, Luis Miguel Vega was the only survivor of an accident on Javier Prado Avenue in Valencia. And in this accident, Luis lost two of his friends. Some people think that Javier is a form of Luis to overcome the fact that he lost his two friends and that he was the only survivor that day. Needless to say, internet users were all over this story. And they were trying to understand, could it be real? Is this really Javier? However, many people left comments saying that Javier's hands do not look at all like Luis Vegas. And that is accurate. But that leaves us with another problem. Many internet users suggested that his hands are not the same throughout his videos. And if you actually take a look, it seems like these internet users are correct. But I'm not too sure. I'll leave that up to you. The problem is, to this day, no one has been able to fully debunk his videos. Some people even asked him, go to a high place so we can see planes, helicopters, an entire city. And he actually visited more than one of these places. There is absolutely nothing. No helicopters, no planes, no cars moving, nothing. So what is really going on here? In your opinion, is Javier really a time traveler from the future? Is he locked in a different or parallel universe? Or maybe is he proof that we live in some sort of simulation? Or is it just a hoax? The thing is, to this day, no one has been able to fully debunk any of his videos. Not only that, no one knows how the heck is he pulling this off if it is fake. So what is really going on here? What is your take? I'm James Lefer, and you're watching The Impossible Channel. Don't forget to leave a like if you enjoyed this video. Subscribe with notifications for more. So that was odd. 
But I can tell you that artificial intelligence can snip out anything that has mobility or that can be identified as something that needs to be edited out instantly. So then the question you should ask yourself is, why go through all that elaborate and why did Instagram confirm the account too? I mean, that's the red flag right there that it's a verified account. <laughs> so uh, someone has to ask themselves these questions. Uh, you know, uh, if, you know, someone was like, oh, I'm going to tell him to go find a key. Yeah. Okay. So why didn't the person stand there as he put the key and say, all right, come now and then stand watch to make sure nobody else. And he doesn't show what the key looks like until so-and-so pulls it up live at the same time if they're both at separate locations. See, there are ways that you can get around this. And I know video editors loved watching this and following this, but you know, how is the account verified? The media has been psyoping you in every single shape and form. You were at home. You were on TikTok. You were on Instagram. Hence why President Trump was going up against TikTok like crazy. Uh, but, you know, we digress. Again, what is true and what is fiction? In fiction, there is always a root of truth. And what you need to do is... See it from the perspective of what you know is true. You know that one and one gives two. One and two is three. Stick to the foundations and you're able to discern a lot of things. <laughs> and when they tell you that a project has been terminated by the military, I would say take that with a grain of salt. Now let's go into the 2022 predictions of The Simpsons before we end today's show. The Simpsons predicted Donald Trump's presidency in 2000. They predicted a three-eyed fish would be found near a power plant in the 90s. And of course, they predicted the Siegfried and Roy tiger attack. But what predictions haven't come true yet? Could 2022 be the year? Well, here are the top 10 Simpsons 2022 predictions that will blow your mind. Let's dive in. Kicking off the list at number 10, VR. The Simpsons didn't predict VR at all. That was a concept that's been around for a long time. It's just now getting good. I mean, recently I got an website. $3 billion worth of VR was sold during the pandemic. Connection during times like these, I mean, that's great and all, but how far can you really go? Number nine, Mars life. Let me ask you lovely people a question, truly. If you could go to Mars right now with like three of your friends, would you actually go? Keep in mind, it's really boring, obviously. And unless you're an astronaut, botanist like Matt Damon, odds are you'd probably have a rough go once you did a because trips to the planet will be shorter, for one, which is great. And they'll also coincide with periods of solar maximum. So while this one may not come true in 2022, let me tell you, it's definitely around the corner. Number eight, robots. We're at a point now where robots can straight up do parkour. Boston Dynamics is trending every other week. Half the time, I can't even tell if their videos are real or if they're CGI. The robots are too impressive. Also, the the fact that I'm saying the robots, like, where are we right now? What's going on? The Simpsons have touched on robots taking over. That was an idea that's been done a few times. In 2012, they predicted that a great amount of jobs would be lost to the robots. But back in 1994, the Simpsons episode titled Itchy and Scratchy Land showed a theme park full of robots that go crazy and attack civilians. Also, we have Sophia the Robot now. She's actually been on talk shows. It's like a real person. She has a citizenship. She's the first robot to receive citizenship from a country. Saudi Arabian citizen. She's a robot. This is real life. She was also on the CNBC saying that she wanted to destroy humans at one point. So, so that's neat. This could slowly be underway. I mean, I hope not. iRobot is literally one of my biggest fears. The movie predicted self-driving cars. 
That's all I'm saying. How can I be of service, Detective Spooner? Number seven, Dome Sweet Dome. For this one, we're looking at The Simpsons movie, which definitely still holds up. If you haven't seen it, check it out after this video. That's a fun time. But with the pandemic seeming to never end, could we possibly see our own towns domed up? This idea came long before The Simpsons movie. Back in the 70s, there were talks about putting a dome over Manhattan this three kilometer dome over Midtown that regulates weather and pollution. It sounds fun, but imagine if that actually had been built. Imagine what we have been doing with it now during the initial COVID outbreak. It would have been madness. People would have been storming it like a castle. And then in 2010, there was a city planned that was supposed to be built in 2020. It was called Eco City. It was supposed to be built in the Mir Mine in Siberia. It was announced in 2014, officially, this climate controlled dome city, four and a half square kilometers, but since 2016, the project lost the dome. What do you guys think? Should we use domes over cities, lose the umbrella, and just live in a big glass ball forever? Honestly, I would do it. I'm tired of walking in puddles. Number six, the World Cup. An episode from 1997 called The Cartridge Family shows Mexico and Portugal going head-to-head -head in football. Like soccer football, not like football, like a foot football thing. You got it. Springfield residents are told to go see this match to determine which nation is the greatest on earth, Mexico or Portugal. So in 2018, when the World Cup rolled around, pun intended, rolled around, fans were excited that this was actually coming true. But at the same time, they had a laugh determining that Ronaldo must have missed that penalty intentionally so that the prediction would come true. Although I think that was just a mistake. But recently, it's been announced that Qatar will host a tournament in November, December 2022, rather than the usual June, July dates. Another World Cup, another chance for the Simpsons to add another prediction to their impressive list. Number five, flying cars. We've been talking about flying cars for so long, I wouldn't even call this a Simpsons prediction anymore, but they've nailed it before, so who knows. 2022 could be the year we say goodbye to tires forever. In 2005, Professor Fink created this machine to let Bart and Lisa see the future. The future at that point was 2013, which is long since passed, but Marge had left Homer because he spent all their savings on an underwater house, but also in this episode, we see hover cars. Come 2017, the concept of a futuristic hover car was revealed. It's called Float, the Renault car of the future. So come 2022, we might not see these exactly, but we might get an even cooler version. We might get this six-person hover car. That's like something that Fantastic Four rolls around with. Are you kidding me? It's called a cyclo car. I'm absolutely going to get my license just for this. Number four, music control. You ever listen to an album and it's so good that it moves you? Sometimes it'll literally move you, right? You have to go and bop around in the kitchen for a bit, get all, get all those beats out. But what if music moved you in like a Pied Piper kind of way? What if next time you heard the cha-cha slide at a wedding, you had to do the cha-cha slide? In 2001, an episode called New Kids on the Bleak showed Bart in a band that was secretly a mind control device for the Navy. Subliminal messaging through music. Love it. One of their most popular tracks was called Drop the Bomb. So obviously it was a, you know, a bit more obvious where they're going. But this isn't a new idea either. Many people have thought that hip-hop brainwashes people. Even the game, like the artist, the game, believes that the internet is brainwashing people into enjoying whack music, as he says. That's a quote. It's a real-life quote from a real artist. What do we think? Are we slowly being brainwashed through music? I mean, every time I open TikTok, I end up hating another classic that I loved once, so maybe it's just we're seeing it too much? Also, I love how hip-hop is like the center of attention for brainwashing the youth. No, it's literally like, yeah, I got four jobs. I make bank. I don't sleep. I work my ass off. Meanwhile, other genres are like, I think he's cheating on me. You should go through his phone. Number three, VR food. The Simpsons had their 600th episode centered around VR. As I mentioned earlier, it's a pretty big deal. It's a technology that's changing lives, really. And those midnight snacks might get a whole lot better in the future, apparently. I swear to God, one time when I was dozing off watching TV, I tried to eat food that wasn't there. I tried to half asleep 
and eat food. It was the dumbest thing I've ever done, but could you imagine if a pizza pocket just magically appeared in your hand in the middle of the night? Well, the Simpsons predict that this virtual reality food might just be a thing. Scientists at Cornell University found out that cheese tastes better when you eat it in a certain pleasant VR setting. So if you see me eating shredded cheese at 2 a.m. naked with goggles on in my room, leave me alone, okay? Don't judge me. I'm in Paris. I'm dining out. How they predicted the Siegfried and Roy? Oops. I fast forward that with the cheese, the VR food. So with the VR food, as you noticed, the Simpsons had a tube in their mouth and they were wearing VR gear. And there's actually a program that was government funded and uh, that's uh, a topic of a conversation that I've had with a few people. Uh, and this was decades ago where I ran across, I was like, what the heck? where people were being fed through a tube something that had like uh, a specific, uh, so there is this berry, let me backtrack. There's this berry um, that exists that if you eat this berry, no matter what you're eating, it will taste sweet. And it's a real thing by nature. Uh, this way, you know, if you eat this berry and you eat a lemon, it'll taste like sugar. Uh, it, it activates umami uh, receptors on your tongue. So the idea was to give people basic nutrition, like a banana bag that you would get in an IV, but through your mouth. And you would think that you're eating whatever it is you're visualizing. So if you are thinking of steak, potatoes, and broccoli while you're eating and the portions you're taking virtually will be translated into your mouth. So um, I wanted to kind of tell you that the government was actually funding this. And uh, I remember when I asked because it was a mistake in compartmentalized information that was provided um, because it was um, a virtual reality thing and someone conveyed the wrong envelope. I was like, what the heck? Yeah, yeah, well, you know, I think it's for astronauts when they when they travel. And I was like, aren't we shutting down NASA? I, I'm confused. We're, we're going to pretend we're going to space again. So... What is it that, you know, this is? And they were like, ah, you know, and I, I can say that. And you'll probably find that project now that has been privatized, of course. I think John Hopkins has a lead on that one. Uh, and so now they're getting funding through food manufacturers to patent. You should look up the patents of virtual food and virtual shit, right? Um that, um, you know, food is not, we solve the problem. No more need for, you know, food. We don't have to eat meat and kill animals. We could just let them die. We don't need fish. We don't need farms. Fuck farms, right? We're just going to put on these goggles and stick this tube in our mouth. And there you go. Eggs. You can make the best eggs the best eggs and it will taste the best. But that would assume that nanotechnology is being used and that can only happen if it's encoded in your DNA somehow, I guess. But that's weird. Hmm. Almost as if they're mocking people. I don't know. Just this is a real thing. 
takes you a while to actually read it. You're like doing an addition. You're like, is that a two or a three? Where's that hand? Why is there four hands? Sometimes pieces need to be digital, right? Middle of the night, you can't see time. You're looking over to see how long you've been asleep for. You can't look at hands and all that jazz. Also, when you go to a wedding, you're not wearing a digital wristwatch, right? You know what I mean? You're not a spy kid. You're not going to be timing people doing laps. You're trying to look good. You're trying to keep it classy. The Big Ben, I hope, never goes digital, but never say never. In an episode from 1995, the future shows Lisa traveling to England to meet her future husband's parents, and the Big Ben is digital at this point. Now, today, construction is still being done on the Big Ben, and we won't hear its chimes until next summer, but can you imagine when they finally reveal it, instead of a chime, you hear a beep? Imagine every hour you get a notification instead of hearing those lovely bells. I lose my mind. And finally, number one, hologram mail. Coming from season 11, episode 17, Bart to the Future, we get another tease at some future tech. A mailman gives Bart a letter, but it packs quite the punch. Bart opens it up, and the letter is, well, it's 4D. It's like a hologram person. It's almost like Star Wars. Honestly, since I saw Star Wars when I was a little tot, I always wanted that technology in my life. That would be amazing. VR food sounds delicious, but hologram mail, that would save lives. I would send so many letters to my friends and family. I'd wear a cloak in all of them, too, and it'd be so ominous. And I would never click stop. I would just stand there and walk out of frame. You know what I mean? That's how all the villains do it. If we get virtual mail, that would lead us to virtual packages. No more shipping fees? Oh, can you imagine? But also, no more eagerly awaiting your package that's been delayed for two weeks. This is, we can actually use this. This is great. This is the future we've been waiting for. Guys, thank you so much for tuning in to those amazing, amazing top 10. 10. I've, I've been your host. The future you've been waiting for, where you don't need to own anything and you'll be happy. You know, and it's funny. What is the most important sense you need in order to taste things? I'm just thinking out loud, right? Have you ever gotten a cold and your nose is stuffy? Things taste different, don't they? They do. They don't taste too nice. They don't taste at all. And this is just another happenstance. Now, since we were speaking of time, I guess we can take just a few moments um, because tomorrow I'm not having a show because I will be en route. So I made this an extended show. People need to um, remember that no matter what, we all have control over the outcome. Regardless of how minuscule you think, every little thing you do matters. Time is nothing but another factor that aids or hinders outcomes. Now, um, it is important to, how do I say, take it all in. So tonight when we stream this prime time thing that our tax dollars are paying for, which I don't think they voted on, but I guess they used it anyway, right? Um, I think it's important that we take a step back and think of things like time and money and, you know, we can't taste shit or smell shit anymore and how things are odd and how they're repeating themselves and how all these little happenstance things happen and how they plan this massive European paid plot to demonstrate to people that there is a place with nothingness. And I'll tell you why there's no nothingness. You want to hear it now? So they say when this guy Javier 
and we'll talk about this on my next show. I did tell you that when I was at uh, university um, getting my education, my focus was on plants. And there's a reason for that. Plants actually can communicate. And that's how I came to the conclusion that from when I was at Bonnie Bassler's, I went to Bonnie Bassler's lab based on the conclusion that I came up with the agrobacterium tunamophaceans that they actually use quorum sensing. And it's not quorum as in a group, right? Because she found it by bacteria grouping to glow together after they reach a, a, a number. But in, in plants, this infection, air quote, is actual mating of a plant cell with a bacterial cell. So, plants can actually communicate with people. There was a guy who invented the lie detector. That guy worked for the government, right? And then he just didn't like what he saw. Nobody asked him what he saw. And he decided to take his research elsewhere, created the lie detector. But he actually discovered that plants can sense things. And so we're going to go through that on my next show because it's important that people understand just how minuscule, see this project that they did removing, you know, animate objects, they didn't remove the plants. And that tells me that it has nothing to do with life. It was a hack. See, if it was naked like Mars, then I'd be like, okay, you know, the Mars that they portray, I'd say, okay. But in fact, the guy that invented the lie detector also determined that plants can communicate in ways that you don't see. And there's a shit ton of YouTube videos. So if you guys want to get a jump on it, but you might get bored because I might share the same video. So, and on that note, Simpsons books, you know, we can't forget my old favorite, Stevie Wonder talking about the past. God bless. See you tonight for the live stream. A place where the air is clean Sabbath There's no sense to sit and watch people die We don't fight our wars the way you do We put back all the things we use on Sabbath there's no sense to keep on doing such crime There's no principles in what you say No direction in the things you do For your world is soon to come All great men have taught Truth and happiness just can't be bought Or so Tell me why are you people so cold?